Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. I'm Drew Perot. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. We're nearing the end of our series on hope and belief as we enter the world of Princess Mononoke. This week, we're going to be talking about what else, how to see with eyes unclouded. In Princess Mononoke, we have this tense conflict with humans fighting with each other, with humans fighting with nature. And then we have Prince Ashitaka, who is kind of a nature human. He comes from this isolated tribe that still holds a lot of the old beliefs about the power of nature and the respect that we should have for it. And yet he's also human. So he's the quintessential interloper that we're always looking at in Wonder Tour. When his village gets attacked, Ashitaka comes into contact with a boar god that has been attached with a demon of hatred. Ashitaka gets a mortal wound that leaves him with this black mark on his arm, and he's forced to go out into the greater world outside of his isolated village in order to try to find resolution. So he comes out into the middle of conflicts between humans, Iron Town and the Samurais. He comes into contact with humans and nature, the boars and the wolves are fighting against the humans. And right from the beginning, the wise woman says that he's going to be able to see with eyes unclouded by hatred. So how do we all get to see like Ashitaka with eyes unclouded by hatred? It's ideal for us to remove the lens of bias, but we know that that's going to be challenging. We all have these crystallized perspectives on the world. When we simplify our thinking to a single focus, then we kind of become like these factions in Princess Mononoke we risk falling into ideological patterns where maybe we overemphasize one thing about the world, like Eboshi does, where she overemphasizes empowerment and freedom and underemphasizes the importance of nature and respect and these other aspects. So when we oversimplify, it keeps us from being able to see with eyes unclouded. So how do we break down all of the complex dimensions and variables in the world and yet not oversimplify to the point where we're just focusing on one metric to improve in our lives or one metric to improve in our businesses? How do we really take the same perspective that Ashitaka takes where we can see with eyes unclouded, an unbiased viewpoint, and really live out wisdom in the world? Welcome to Wonder Tour. This is Brian. I'm here with Drew again, and we're talking about Princess Mononoke. We're dipping a Wonder Tour toe into the anime waters with one of the classic Miyazaki movies from Studio Ghibli. I really wanted to talk about this one for a number of reasons, which will be obvious if you've seen it. It's a beautiful movie with really compelling characters, but it also, much like its main character, this movie sees very clearly the conflicting worldviews and the sympathetic worldviews from a number of different points of view, from a number of different factions in the movie, and explores things in very unexpected ways. It doesn't follow a lot of fantasy movie or hero's journey tropes. It doesn't offer a lot of easy answers. There's not so clearly the rebellion in the empire, good guys and bad guys sort of a setup here. And so it's it's got a much more sort of nuanced and complex view of the challenges involved in struggling for resources and the challenges involved in empowering people and figuring out how to fit together. So I was uh, looking forward to this discussion, but I've seen the movie a number of times. So I'm interested to hear from Drew, like, how did, the, how did this strike you? What did you take away from it that you were surprised or pleased by? 
I think the starting point has to be the world building. There seems to be this like rich, high fidelity models of the world, and we're only dropped into a single part of it. We're like being ferried through this one journey in this really rich world. And much like how in Star Wars, George Lucas creates this high level of detail and you kind of see like an alien and you're like, oh, I wonder if that alien has a backstory. And it's like you get that same kind of thing going on here. You meet a character. You barely even see the, the apes. We see these apes and they have like very small role to play in the film. But you're like, oh, there's this whole ape community. And they have their own objectives and their own needs and their own wars that they're fighting and stuff. Even just the little stubs seem to have a lot of substance to them. And it really makes this feel like a lived in world, again, kind of Lord of the Rings style, where you're like, oh, my gosh, like, how deep does this go? Yeah, that's a good way to look at it. And part of the appeal there is that it's an observer story. The character that we're following, Ashitaka, his role in the story explicitly, as you called out in the title here, is that, you know, he's been wounded by the world and his challenge is to go out and see with eyes unclouded by hate. To go out and just dispassionately observe what is happening and try to see if there's a way through. And so we get to take that journey with him. And he's not necessarily, he's not the chosen one. He's not going to conquer everyone. He's not going to become the emperor at the end or something, right? It's more about having this interloper that we love so much at Wonder Tour journey through this world. And as the journey happens, the audience gets to pick up on a lot of a lot of nuances and a lot of pieces of what's going on. Yeah, he's a true interloper. He is forced out of his tribe due to the boar attacking his arm and then the prophecy and then the tribe's policies that you can't come back after you leave the valley. So he has to go into the outside world, which he's unfamiliar with. You know, we have the small world, big world, hero's journey type thing going on here. And then you have the added layer that he's a nature human, which is great. And I think we, we're kind of just going to use this term here over the next two episodes of nature human, because we have sides that see themselves as very human or very nature. And those sides want to clash with other factions to defend their own side. They have a strong belief in themselves and that they have a right to the land and the resources. And so they want to go fight with the other factions. And then we see Ashitaka, who is really a nature human. He's human in his body, but due to his upbringing with his tribe, he has a high, high level of respect for nature that is equal to his level of respect that he has for humans. Right. And they symbolize that very effectively with the relationship he has with his red elk that he rides around, Yakul, who is. Very sympathetic is probably the best character in the movie, but that's kind of his close bond with nature is at a micro scale is in that relationship. And then at a larger scale, he's the one who moves easily into the forest spirit world and the ancient gods world and then back out of it and moves easily into the world of Irontown and the humans. And so I wanted to talk about Irontown just a little bit because I love the character of Lady Eboshi. For the leader of one of the conflicting factions that's, you know, destroying and pillaging the forest for their resources. Like in a Western movie, she would be, you know, cackling and twirling in her mustaches or she'd be played by, you know, Ray Fiennes or somebody. Right. But in this movie, she is not only a woman leader in a medieval Japan setting, but she's made her entire town out of literally lepers and prostitutes that she rescued from their former profession and mule drivers. And she's got this sort of band of outcasts and misfits that she's pulled together that she's clearly sincerely loves and has motivated to work infinitely hard for her 
to establish this, you know, pre-industrial society where they're smelting iron and they have resources and they are making their own community and making their own modern world. And so she's an incredibly sympathetic character and she's principled and she has people that adore her that she's fiercely protective of. It's a very powerful leadership figure. So we don't get an easy answer of, oh, the people that are threatening you are bad people like we often do in fantasy movies. But we also, through Ashitaka's eyes, as he journeys between these worlds, we get to see the both the power and the limitations of just that one viewpoint, just that one set of priorities and how these different factions in the world are set against each other and how they aren't able to see another way to resolve it except through conflict. What we see with Lady Eboshi is, again, something that we come across in business, where maybe you have a silo within the business, whether it's a department, it could be a unit, whatever. But you get a silo where there's great leadership and there's somebody who really believes in the people there and empowers them and helps them to grow and achieve their dreams. And that leader, because of that fierce passion for the people, ends up being against other things. And so they end up fighting with others of their peers in order to get their metrics met because they feel like they have a duty to their people to hit their metrics. And of course, there's the vibes in this movie of imperialism and all those different things that are going on where we have just different factions. Neither one of them is necessarily right or wrong. And these factions have become very ideological, not by choice, but just kind of by the natural order of things. So I think Eboshi falls into the category of ideological because she's overly simplified the model of wisdom to be focused on freedom and empowerment, which makes sense. Given her background and given the background of the people that she's supporting, that totally makes sense. The flaw is not to be all about empowerment and freedom. The flaw is just that other dimensions of wisdom have just been forgotten about. (laughs) The the flaw is the dot, 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 damn the consequences, you know, (laughs) coda to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so she takes it to the level of, okay, I guess I'm going to have to kill the nature god in order to be able to do the things that I want to do, right? Like nothing but escalation. Like you said, you know, to maybe put a point on the first sort of leadership lesson out of this is that us versus them is a easy and appealing and cheap dead end way to motivate a team. It works really well. It's us against the world and everybody else's, you know, is going to take things away from us and we have to fight for it. It's a good way to build team spirit. It works to pull people together to feel like they have a common cause, especially if they're the only ones in the world or the only ones in the company. We're the only ones that are protecting our company from screwing up the finances or screwing up that regulation or whatever. Like it's very easy to do, right? We're the only ones that are keeping the customers from getting bad parts. And so we're checking for bugs or we're checking for, you know, we're checking for failures, but that's, you're not fighting against the other people in your organization. That shouldn't be the missing. If you get to the, if you get past the point of we're defending this viewpoint to everybody else is inherently evil because they're not respecting our viewpoint, then you've narrowed your focus a little bit too much. And it's an easy thing to do. But the stepping outside of it is the first step of that is seeing with unclouded eyes. What is the other point of view? So what do we see from Ashitaka in this movie about how to do that? How do you see with eyes unclouded by hate? How do you understand conflicting points of view? I think the first step here, as we're winding our way up to the mountaintop, and I think we talked about this in the Dark Knight episode that we just did, you have to appeal to hope at a higher level. 
it's easy when we're fighting over physical things like resources and space and stuff like that, which again, can happen in a business. It can happen out in the world. We end up simplifying things down to a physical level. And Ashitaka, due to his background and just the magnanimous character that he has, he never is willing to simplify things that much. He doesn't want to meet you at the physical level because the physical level, it's easy for it to be us against them. To your point, Brian, if we can back it out to more of a conceptual and and ideals level and values, I think is what we talked about in The Dark Knight. The values level is where, you know, a lot of these factions probably agree on the values, or at least there's a lot of overlap between their values, but their execution of how they are trying to achieve those values is exactly what's different. And I even see that today. You know, we'd ever get political on here, but that that absolutely is true of politics as well. There is, <laughs> it's not that we don't agree on values most of the time. There There is a lot of overlap on the values. It's the how that we don't agree on. And as a result, you can end up with a Princess Mononoke situation here, which is exactly what we're trying to avoid, where you end up needing an Ashitaka to come through and part the sea and have everybody all working together. <laughs> yeah, well, and this just occurs to me as we're talking, but one of the great things about Ashitaka's setup, the reason that he's able to do this is because he's already lost everything. He's been exiled from his society and he's mortally wounded. Like he literally has nothing to gain. And so he doesn't need to be attached to his goals. He's not coming in trying to win for himself. He's not coming in because he desperately needs to make more money or because if they don't make the metrics this quarter, everybody's going to be laid off. Like he doesn't have any of those problems. So he's showing us in not desperation, not nihilism, but in not having goals to be attached to, he's able to just see. And what he sees is that all these other factions are so attached to their own goals that they're not able to see where they are aligned and where they're conflicting with the other factions. They're not able to see potential ways to fit them together. Mm, that's really good. He has nothing to lose or gain. That seems to be a critical piece if we're talking about really trying to see with eyes unclouded. Like you said, it's not to not have anything to lose or gain because it's really hard to reduce everything down to that in a given situation, but to really de-emphasize our own personal goals and try to put a higher emphasis, like we were talking about, on values and on collective goals. Right. And that's magnanimous behavior. He doesn't have aspirations for himself, but he's also not completely mercenary like Jigo, who's just, who is, he doesn't believe in anything. He's seeing the world very clearly. The monk character who's sort of assisting with the God-killing plot, he sees things very clearly. He doesn't have a point of view, but he very much has a personal gain that he's striving for. Where Ashitaka is just like, I don't want other people to be hurt like I was, right? I, I am here so that there are fewer demons and so there are fewer wounded people. So what we see as we're coming up to the mountaintop then is the way that he does that. He starts the journey with a challenge, with a problem to solve or a, a question to understand. But the way that he consistently behaves throughout the course of the story is he just talks to people. He just sits with them. He just goes and sees them where they are and listens to what they have to say and tries to digest their point of view, right? It's not that complicated. He goes into the forest spirit and he's got his eyes open. He's like, oh, there's these the soldiers freaking out about the little tree spirits. He's like, oh, I think those are a good sign. I think that means it's a healthy forest. Like, let's just they seem like they seem like they're leading us somewhere. I guess we'll follow them and see what happens. He's got an open eyes and open heart. He's not attached to a point of view. And so he experiences the forest spirit world. 
he meets the monk, Jigo, and has a conversation with him, learns a little bit, shares a little bit of information, understands his point of view a little bit. And then he ends up at Irontown and he's welcomed there because he's saved a couple of their mule drivers. And so he brings them back and Lady Boshi invites him in. She's like, oh, sure, I'll tell you all my secrets. Here you go. And he just listens. He doesn't recoil at the lepers. He doesn't get all angry about the weapons. He doesn't look down upon the former prostitutes. He's just like, oh, what are you doing here? That's interesting. What's going on here? So that kind of leads us to our mountaintop moment. You want to take us into this, Drew? Yeah, so our mountaintop moment here is really quite small, and I think that's fitting of the point that we're coming to. Our mountaintop is Ashitaka working the bellows. So when he's in Irontown, after, he, like you said, he gets the tour of the garden from Lady Boshi, he's looking at how they're processing the iron, and he sees the women working the bellows, and he just jumps in. He's like, all right, well, that, I need to just try and experience that for myself to understand what these people are going through. Like you said, rather than looking at all the different dimensions of technology and industrialism and violence and all these different things and trying to make a quick judgment, Based on what he previously has known or thought, he actually goes and just experiences it and processes it. Yeah, you know, he strips off his shirt. He's like, hey, can I take a turn? And then he gets on there. He's like, wow, this is hard work. <laughs> like, yeah, try to keep that up for eight hours. He really digests not only kind of who they are and what their goals are, but also just like what it's taking for them to, to do what they're doing, to achieve their dreams. And so he's in a very good position to understand how these points of view conflict. And so when he, we haven't talked about it much, but one of the undercurrents here is that this demon infection that he's gotten has made him very strong and potentially very violent. And he keeps choosing to use that power in different ways. So if we're trying to answer the question of how do we rationalize the complexity that we find in the world, because that's, I think, a similar question to how do we see with eyes unclouded. We really have to figure out a way to rationalize all this complexity and all these different dimensions that we're seeing. I think one of the answers that we get here is just to work the bellows, and that's the perfect analogy for it. If we're trying to be able to see clearly, I think that's the central metaphor <laughs> that we've found in Princess Mononoke, then really one of the first steps is just to meet people where they're at. Going back to our compassion series, it's to sit down on the curb next to somebody. It's to work the bellows with them. Like let's say in business, you know, there's always decisions that need to be made. And of course I have my own initiatives and my organization's initiatives that we're trying to move forward. And so I want to make sure those don't get left behind and I wanna push for things. And as you add in everybody else's initiatives and their metrics and things that they want to achieve, I think the only way that we can approach that is to kind of back up and just slow down and say, okay, if I'm running up against this other group, do I understand them properly? You know, they're saying that this metric matters to them. Do I actually understand why that metric matters to them? Because until I understand that, then I'm not going to be able to see with eyes unclouded and I'm not going to be able to be the interloper that the world needs in order to move forward. Yeah, if you've done that skillfully, even accidentally once or twice, you understand the power of it. If you walk into a room and you can be the person that can help break through the deadlock, that can help look at the points of alignment or help figure out a path forward, that's really powerful and it's really welcomed. But like you said, if the challenge is that it's a complex world with conflicting goals, one of the things that this movie shows us is not oh, here's the answer. Find the good guys and fight for the downtrodden. <laughs> what this movie shows this is, it's not an answer, but a process, right? Is that one of the skillful things you can do is to 
let go of your preconceptions, open up your eyes, go work the bellows with somebody and see what you can learn. I think there's a good example. When you're choosing a solution, you're either you're choosing a design or you're choosing a technology. It can be very hard to get everybody to agree on something, right? It's not like we're just going to come to some magical consensus where everybody suddenly sees things through the same eyes. That's really hard to do in the world, as we see in Princess Mononoke. Even with all of Ashitaka's example that he sets for everybody, they're struggling to see the world, even at the end of the movie, all Mm -hmm. through the same eyes. Yet that's not really the challenge. If we set that as our goal as magnanimous leaders to get everybody to see things and have clarity of sight, that's going to be really hard to do. I think really our goal is to operate like Ashitaka, though, to be for people. That's what he is. In this scenario, people are animals, too, and stuff like that. In our world, a lot of times it's just the different factions that are out there. It's the people that are fighting for one technology over another technology. It's like, hold on, everybody. We're for each other here. (laughs) We're not for some piece of technology. If we're for a piece of technology, that's just going to cause tension. That's just going to cause conflict. We need to be for each other. And then the solution will solve for itself. Yeah, the approach of striving to see things clearly is not a goal in and of itself. It's a a technique, right? It's a way to approach unknown challenges. It's a way to make sure you have information before you try to make a decision. And I love the technology example, right? If you're introducing a new technology, what's important about that technology is not the philosophy of the technology, but like the people working the bellows. Is it going to work for them? Is it going, you know, is it producing something that you want? Is it going to be effective at the ground level where it's being used? And so you won't learn that by having a philosophy about, well, this needs to be done with agile development, or we need to buy this from this vendor because it's aligned with our long-term procurement strategy, right? (laughs) It's like, okay, what problem are we trying to solve in our business? And do we understand the ground truth well enough that we believe that it will work? So the process of seeing clearly, of letting go of your preconceptions and going and checking for yourself, that's one of the lessons we can take away from here. I like how we've wrapped it up here. I mean, there's not going to be some simple solution to the complexity of wisdom, and that's what WonderTor is. It's trying to understand what are the different pieces that make up this model of wisdom. So one of those is, how do we see with eyes unclouded? How do we bring more of a true perspective, more of a overhead perspective on a situation so that we can be the interlopers that help to navigate conflict and help people to work together instead of tearing each other apart? I think as we wind down the mountain here, we kind of talked about a couple different ways to approach this. We said, number one, don't assume you understand everything to start out. It's like making a snap judgment in a situation with a lot of complexity generally is not required. And even aligning with a faction or a side early on can cause bias down the line that makes it hard to see with eyes unclouded. So we want to appeal to a higher level of hope, right? We want to set our hope in something that is not, you know, this physical land. (laughs) If everybody's hope is in this one plot of physical land that has the iron in it or whatever, that's not going to result in a lot of collaboration. We want to de-emphasize our own personal goals. We see that with Ashitaka, right? He has nothing left to lose and nothing to fight for personally other than to see everybody win. He's about getting a collective win. We talked about working the bellows. That is like the number one tactic here that will help enable all of these other ones is just go work the bellows with somebody. If you're finding that it's hard to understand people, and that you don't quite get why they have a metric that's a certain way or why they're so hot on doing things a certain way. They seem to be very defensive of a position. 
and you don't understand why, it's like, okay, well, can you work the bellows with them? Then lastly, we said, you know, there isn't an answer, but there is a process. That's what this is about. All of these tactics here to see with eyes unclouded are not going to just solve this problem. But when implemented and when you put them into your mindset and start making them a part of your routine and your process, it becomes a little bit easier to get closer to the mark on wisdom and a little bit less biased in our own understanding of the world. Nice. That was a fun discussion and some elements in this movie that I have always loved but are a bit crystallized for me here. This has been helpful. So coming up, our next episode, Princess Mononoke Part 2, will be the last episode in our Hope and Belief series and the bridge into our new series about limit breaks, which is a concept I think you guys will really enjoy. For now, I think we're going to leave it here and we will join you again next week for Princess Mononoke Part 2. Now that you've got this clear vision, now that you've collected the information, we're going to talk about what do you do with your power? What do you do with your authority? And what is the value of restraint? So we're looking forward to that conversation. We hope you join us next week. In the meantime, just remember, character is destiny. <laughs>